If you would please join with me in turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 5, 9, but I want us to read chapter 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, let's read beginning at verse 16, then we'll read down to verse 11 of chapter 5. Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So then, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we have been made manifest to God, and I hope that we have been made manifest also in your consciences. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, you know our frame. We are but dust. I know, Lord, that my brothers and sisters who have been here all weekend are tired. Lord, I'm tired. But your word deserves our full attention. And so I ask that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us physically. Strengthen us mentally. Give us strength in our inner man to be able to receive the things that you have for us in the verses that we've just read. I joyfully confess, we joyfully confess together, Lord, that we are insufficient for the weighty task of declaring your holy truth. But I thank you that in Christ there is sufficiency and your spirit is at work in the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, I need your help. I pray that you would strengthen me, that your work this morning would transcend this clay jar vessel and that your word would go forth in power. And Lord, we who are hearing the word this morning need the same help. Unless you teach us, we do not learn. 
Unless you plant your word in our hearts, it does not remain. And so we ask for your help as we listen. We gather as your church. Your church is precious to you. Blood-bought we are, belonging to your Son by virtue of His work that saved us. And so we gather as your church. We need the Word this morning. We need to be washed. We need to be strengthened. We need to be encouraged. We need to be corrected. But we are mindful that some gather with us and some will hear me who don't know your Son. We thank you, Lord, that you've saved many in these recent days, and we pray that you would continue to save even this morning, that, Lord, today might be the day when some poor, needy soul is brought to faith in your Son. Lord, would you shine your light in hearts and grant the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sooner or later, if you live long enough on this side of eternity, it happens to us. Something comes along that exposes in us a false sense of security. I don't have to tell you, we, the people of God, we are truly secure. Safe in the hand of God, safe in the hand of the Son of God. When we read Romans 8, 28 through 30, those are not words just meant to make us feel better. It's not some kind of psychological salve, it's reality. God is at work causing all things to work together for good to all those who love Him, who belong to Him, who are His, and are destined for conformity to His Son. That's reality. Can't be more secure than that. Every day we live our lives in that reality. So we are truly secure. But what can happen to us is that we are lulled into a state in which we have a misinvested sense of security. We are truly secure, but not in the ways that we imagine. We begin to treat temporal things as if they're going to last for forever. Something comes along that awakens us to the reality, reminds us that the present form of this world is passing away. This is not our home. We know this. We know this intellectually. We have believed this sincerely and confessionally, both by our knowledge of Scripture and by observation. We know that the things that belong to this world don't last but all of a sudden, what we have known intellectually, we come to know personally. And what that means is we have usually come to have known it painfully. Marriages can seem like they're going to last forever until your spouse is gone. Having children can seem like it will last forever until a child is gone. Health can seem like it's going to last forever until your health is gone. Some of us, we live our lives, relatively speaking, almost free of difficulty. I mean, you can go years. I know in my case, 33 years. I hadn't lost anyone to death who was near to me. I'm in a relatively difficult, free life. 
until something comes along that just turns your world upside down, and it's never going to be the same. I heard Tim say he's not the same man he was two years ago. Some of us understand that, don't we? Not in the same way he has understood it, but in our own way. We are shaken, we are sobered, we are refocused. And this world, as it is under a curse, we see it again for what it really is. This is the unique reality of the Christian life. We are meant to live our lives with two worlds in view at the same time. We live in the present as we should because we have real spiritual responsibilities right now. We have real spiritual opportunities right now. There are real joys, real blessings that belong to life as it is right now, and that's by God's design. Our Father has given us all things richly to enjoy. Our God is pleased to give us graces that we enjoy in the moment. And yet at the same time, we are meant to hold to those things loosely. We live our lives with our minds fixed on heaven, with eternal values, with eternal promises, always held before our mind's eye. And that truth is to inform every realm in which we're living right now. We are a people serving God now, but we serve Him in view of the forever tomorrow. And that two-world perspective extends to our own person. It's as near to us as ourselves. You know, we look around and we say, things are not right now as they should be, and they are not what they will be, but I am not as I should be, and I am not yet what I will be. I'm not what I was. The Lord saved me, but I'm not yet what I will be. And so I live my life now pursuing Christ and loving Christ and serving Christ, but always mindful that there's a better day coming and wanting that day, longing for that day, in some painful moments, aching for that day. And as we live with these two worlds in view, we are meant to have an aim. We don't have to dream it up. We don't have to discover it on our own. God has set it forth in His Word. God has identified the aim for us, and we are to exist in the now pursuing what He has set forth as our aim. That makes life simple in some ways, doesn't it? We talk about simplicity this weekend, simple. When I understand that what I'm meant to do with my life is to simply take hold of what Jesus took hold of me for. Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's living the Christian life. And that ambition is put to us in yet another way. I think you've seen this weekend, we talk about one ambition, but it's expressed in a multitude of ways, isn't it? It's really about Christ. We aim always to know Him. But the Bible 
gives that to us in various ways. And we see it yet again in the ninth verse of this fifth chapter. Look at it there with me. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. There is our ambition. There is our aim. And I want to talk about that verse this morning. Now, we can't really understand verse 9 unless we hear it in the context in which Paul writes it. And so I'm going to do something this morning that's, frankly, is not my favorite thing to do, but it's a good thing for me to do. Those who are members here, you know, we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, and which means oftentimes, though we're very careful to understand the micro in view of the macro, we still spend a lot of time in the micro. We go slow. We take our time. But this morning, I want to deal with that verse in the macro. I want to just broaden out our view of that verse and take in the larger context, both verses that precede it and verses that follow it, and just take the big picture into our minds, you know, sort of the helicopter view of the ambition that's being described. Because I think, I pray at least that you'll see there's value in that this morning. So today what we're thinking about is this, the sight necessary for one simple ambition. The sight necessary for one simple ambition. What we must see if our aim is to be something as simple and singular as the ambition that God calls His people to pursue. You have to have the vision. Good news, God granted it to you when He saved you. But you have to live your life with the vision necessary to embrace the ambition that's spoken of in verse 9. We'll look at all these verses this morning under three headings. I'll just mention them as we come to them. The first one is this, realities regarding two worlds. Verses 1 through 5, we see realities regarding two worlds. But before we look at those verses, at the end of chapter 4, Paul is giving voice to an enduring, a supernatural optimism. Verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He describes this enduring optimism. He says, we do not lose heart, but how do you explain it, Paul? How do you live like that? He explains that it exists because of what he can see. It's what he sees. It's what he chooses to fix his spiritual eyes on that explains his enduring courage. Notice in those verses, there is external decay. Our outer man is decaying, yet at the same time, he's cognizant of an internal renewal. There is affliction, but he regards it to be light and momentary. Why? Because he knows what it's producing. Something eternally weighty. He talks about what he can see, what he cannot see. What is temporal, what is eternal. 
And he chooses to fix his eyes on what is not seen. As he lives his life in the world of sight, he chooses to fix his spiritual eyes on what he can't see, the eternal thing. And then, as he writes what we find in chapter 5, he wants to take us into a deeper description of our existence both in the now and what we're going to be in the forever. And he brings it as near to us as our own selves, as our physical condition, our bodies. He talks about the believer's present body. Verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. He's talking about the body. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. He's describing our physical condition in the now and what it will be in the forever. Notice how he describes the current body. What is it like? He uses four descriptions. Number one, it's a tent. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. He describes it as a tent. Paul was a tent maker. You know that. And so this analogy fits with something Paul was very familiar with, the pitching of a tent, the taking down of a tent, a temporary dwelling. Some commentators believe that he may have in mind here the tabernacle, which would be put up, taken down as the wilderness wandering occurred in contrast to the temple, which would be a permanent structure. Either way, it doesn't change the main point, which is a tent is something temporary. He talks about an earthly house. If the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. The Greek is literally our earthly house of the tent. The tent is our earthly house. Right now, these bodies that we know, this is how we dwell on earth. In a body that is dying, in a body that is perishing, in a body that is not for forever, in a body that we will one day leave behind, this is the tent, this is our earthly house in which we live right now. And we need to say something at this point. It is not right to think of a human being simply as a body. We know that when we attend a funeral and there we see someone that we've known or loved, we see the body in the casket. We know they are not there. That was their house. They are more than the body, but it's also not right to think of a human being as being designed by God in a way that the body is not important. The body is important. God designed man to be body and soul. The human being is material and immaterial. This was God's design from the very beginning. And so it was never God's original design that man's existence would be without a physical presence. God formed man from the dust of the earth, created his physical nature first, then breathed into that man the breath of life, and he became a living creature, body and soul. Genesis 2.7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But when man fell, when Adam fell, when sin 
made its entrance into the world, death came with sin. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now man would know spiritual death, and apart from redemption would know everlasting death, and he would know physical death. Every part of his nature affected corruption in his physical nature. This is why our bodies desire things we should not desire. This is why we overeat. This is why there is the sin of lust in the world, because our bodies have been corrupted. It's not just our inner man, but even our physical nature knows corruption. Death is at work in these bodies that are not yet redeemed. And so physical life would come to an end. What was originally designed to be an everlasting unity of material and immaterial became a temporary house that would one day expire, which is why in verse 4, he refers to this body like clothing. We don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. And all of it can be summed up by saying we now live in a mortal condition. Into verse 4, what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. The body we have now, due to the fall, due to sin, due to death, is a mortal body. Subject to death, a dying body. Everybody in this room is dying right now. Even the youngest among us. If the Lord Jesus should tarry, we all arrive at the same end. Which, by the way, is a good reminder that even after having been saved, if the Lord should offer to us that we could live forever in our current condition, if these bodies could go on forever just as we are, but having been saved, that is not what we should want. God has something better in store for us, doesn't He? A new body that matches the new us, that is fit for eternity. Paul also describes the believer's future body in these five verses. Thanks be to God that because of what Christ has done for us, this current condition is not our forever condition. Resurrection is in our future. Our Savior is the first fruits of what we're going to share in. And how is this new body described? Well, as a building from God. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. What we're going to know physically will be God's work. It will come to us from God. A house not made with hands. What is that emphasizing? Many verses I could share, but let me just give you one. The writer of Hebrews, I think, explains it so clearly for us. Hebrews 9.11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent... And then he says this, not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. So not belonging to the world as it is right now. We have a house that's going to come from God, not of this creation. Not designed and fit for how we're living right now, but designed and fit for how we're going to live forever. That's the body that's coming. And then Paul says in verse 1, eternal in the heavens. I agree with those who say, I don't think this is talking about location. It's not like an Iron Man suit in the heavens right now. And then we're going to be given it one day. 
It's not like that. It's not location, it's qualitative. What Paul is saying is it's not an earthly body. It's a body made for the heavenly realm. That's what we're going to receive in the resurrection. A body made for the heavenly realm. Which is why he can call it a heavenly dwelling. Verse 12, for indeed in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And in these five verses, he uses the same analogy, clothing. We're going to be clothed, we're not going to be naked. To be absent from the body right now, until the resurrection, to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. Glorified spirits in the presence of the Lord, but not yet with the forever body we're going to receive. Naked as it were, but this is not God's forever plan. And so what we're longing for is not that state of being naked, but to be clothed with our forever future. That's what we want. And when that day arrives, what it's going to represent is life. We know right now a mortal existence, but that, into verse 4, will be swallowed up by life. Forever life. One forever day. The best day of your life that will never end. The realities that belong to two worlds. And as believers, we are aware of the now and the forever. And we live in the now, and we should live in the now. Real responsibilities, real opportunities, real joys, real blessings from the hand of our God. But we never hold on to the temporal as if it is eternal. We hold loosely because we are aware of the world that's coming and we're living in light of the world that's coming. It informs eternity breaks into the temporal. What we know is coming must inform our lives in every realm as we live right now. Second point, notice then in verses 6 through 8, Paul gives voice to his desires regarding these two worlds. Verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Sometimes it can be a little difficult to follow Paul He likes to begin thoughts and then interject thoughts and then finish thoughts. But if I could just make it simple and boil it down to three things, I would just say, first of all, he talks about the grace of God that we experience right now in the form of good courage. We are not yet where we desire to be. We are not yet where we will be. But that doesn't mean we live despondent lives. We don't walk around, you know, living our lives with a dark cloud over us and rain falling all the time. That's not the Christian life. In fact, he emphasizes it twice, doesn't he? He says in verse 6, being always of good courage. And then he says in verse 8, we are of good courage, as if to say, I don't want you to miss this. I have longings regarding our eternal future, but it doesn't mean that I'm living my life right now in a spirit of depression. What should characterize the believer's life? It doesn't mean we don't have our low moments. It doesn't mean, in fact, we know unique sorrows right alongside unique joys. We know a mourning that's constant, even as we live our lives in hope. But what the Lord gives to us, 
on this side of eternity is what Paul has translated good courage. Thoreo is the word. It means this, to have confidence and firmness of purpose in the face of danger or testing, to be courageous, to have courage, to be bold in the face of all of the troubles and all of the heartaches and all of the loss and all of the difficulty of life as we know it now. Yet the Lord gives us the grace to be courageous, to be bold, to be joyful. The Lord is with us. We're not alone. And the way that he communicates that to us is in the realm of faith. It's by faith. He explains it in verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. How do you live in the now in view of the tomorrow? It's by faith. And God granted you that faith when he saved you. You have spiritual eyes. You have spiritual comprehension. You're able to see what the Lord reveals in his word, and you believe it, and you live your life out of it. Good courage, experienced in faith, yet at the same time, the grace of God experienced in the desire for what is promised. That's grace too. Not just the grace to know joy in the present, but the grace to know a longing for what the natural man can't see, what the natural man would never desire, what you and I couldn't see, what we didn't desire before the Lord saved us. God grants us now the eyes to see and the heart to long for what he has in store for us. So this is our life, not only setting our minds on the eternal while we live in the temporal, but managing our affections until the day arrives when faith becomes sight. Knowing what it is to walk in good courage now, but with a groaning and a longing and a desire for what will be and what we will be, even extending to our own physical state. And it's in that context third point, final point, it's in that context that we see the single ambition that connects the two worlds. We have a kind of life that only salvation could produce. We are, as a result, a people living with the awareness of two worlds, where the knowledge of and the desire for the eternal has broken into the temporal, and yet there's something for the Christian that always connects the two worlds. Nothing on this side of eternity stays the same, but this stays the same. This never changes. A simple, singular aim that is everlasting in nature. It is our aim now. It is our aim as we think about the future. It connects the two worlds. Simply stated, it's to please Jesus. What do you want to do right now? How do you want to live your life right now? The believer says, I want to please Christ. Well, now see yourself standing before the face of your Savior, face to face. There you are in his very presence. What do you want but to be found as one who pleased him? One single ambition. In verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us eight things about this ambition. Let me just mention it. We're just going to fly through it. By the way, the word ambition... Philotomai. First part of that word, you hear love. And then when you think about time, you honor. So when you think about an ambition, it really is setting your heart on what you consider to be honorable. 
Setting your heart on what you know is worthy for your heart to be set on. That's an ambition. He says, our ambition is to please Jesus. And he tells us eight things about this ambition. One, the ambition is logical. It's a logical ambition. He begins verse 9 with the word, therefore. Knowing what he's just described about these two worlds and even our own future, this then makes sense, doesn't it? How do you live with these two things in view? You live wanting to please Jesus. It's a logical ambition. It is an attendant ambition. He says in verse 9, we also have, we also have, along with these other things that God has revealed to us that we have, we have this too. This travels with everything God has revealed. So it's not just logical, it fits, it connects, it's in accordance with the truth that has been revealed. It is a believer's ambition. I love the fact he doesn't say, therefore I have as my ambition. He says, therefore we have as our ambition. This is universal. This is true of all of us. This is the believer's ambition. And it is a single ambition. He doesn't say we have as our ambitions and then list several things. We have one. God has made it as simple as that. You have one thing to aim at. Live your life to please your Savior. It is a transcendent ambition. He says in verse 9, whether at home or absent. Whether absent from the Lord in the moment because we're living on this side of eternity or standing there at home one day. It never changes, whether in the body or out of the body. It never changes. It is a submissive ambition. He says in verse 9, to be pleasing to Him. Not a life of self-pleasing, but the life of pleasing someone else. That's why I say it is submissive. It's not what I want, it's what He wants. That's what I aim at. What does He want? It is a Christ-focused ambition. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. We know the one whom we're seeking to please, Jesus. It's a reverential ambition. Because he says in verse 10, here's something that fuels this ambition, the knowledge that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He states the ambition. And that ambition is full of meaning. So how do you know what to pursue? Think about the ambition stated. Now think about the ambition's standard. If your ambition is to please Christ, how do you know what pleases Him? God granted you The ambition, when He saved you, you now have it in your heart, if you know Christ, to please Him. I know this about every one of my brothers and sisters. I know this in my own life, that when the Lord saved me, He gave me a desire to please Christ. But what is the standard for that? How do I do that? Answer, you find it in the Word of God. Do you understand? You can describe the teaching of Scripture in this way. What we're doing when we teach the Word of God is we're teaching God's people how to please their Savior. That's what the Word of God represents. How to fulfill your ambition. 1 Thessalonians 4 was read earlier. Verse 1 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus 
that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. How does Paul there characterize the apostolic instruction? We've been teaching you how to walk and how to please God. Colossians 1.9 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Where do you find the will of God? In the Word of God. And so as you learn the Word of God, you're learning the will of God. And Paul is praying that the church would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to Him. What a sad thing it is for the Lord to save someone, grant them this ambition, and then people to starve in churches where they're never taught how to fulfill their ambition. The Word of God is how we know what pleases Jesus. So how do you pursue it? If the Word of God is the standard, if God granted the desire... How does it actually get pursued? The answer then would be learning and living. Learning the Word of God and practicing it. Not being auditors in a classroom in which the Bible is taught. Not just hearing it, doing it. Learning the Word of God, practicing the Word of God. And as you do, if if the Lord has saved you, your heart will be full Because a God-granted, grace-imparted ambition is now being satisfied with the knowledge of the truth of God's Word and the privilege to live it out with the power that God supplies by His Spirit. I mean, something as simple as home life. Phil's sermon on Psalm 128. 1 Timothy 5.4 But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Listen, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. That pleases Jesus. For you to take care of your parents, your grandparents. This is something we learn. And as we live our lives on this side of eternity, what are we doing? We're taking God's Word, having learned it. We're applying it to all the situations we meet with. Because what our goal is, is to discern, to put our approval on what God approves, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So the ambition stated, the ambition standard is the Word of God. The ambition's pursuit then is learning and living. And with all of that, there's a certainty attached to it. The ambition's certainty. We know this for certain. One day, our claims to desire to please Jesus will be tested. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Brother, sister, can I ask you, do you want to please Jesus? If you do, would you say amen? Amen. You know that's going to be tested. I'm talking to me. It's going to be tested. Now, the test in view in verse 10 is a gracious testing. 
It's for the purpose of reward. Lovingly tested, graciously tested, it's a Savior's testing. It's a shepherd's testing, but it will be faithfully and truthfully tested. How have you spent your life on this side of eternity? Has your aim been right? Are you living your life to please Jesus? One day it will be tested. You can be certain of that. Which motivates me, and I trust motivates you, Lord, please save me from myself. Don't let me waste my life. Final thought this morning. The ambition's results. Wherever this is true in us, wherever this is really our desire at any given moment, how does it manifest itself? Living with the knowledge of two worlds, with one aim, you learn how to fulfill the aim from the Word of God, you put it into practice, as you live your life like that, what will be the fruit? I think the best way to answer that is just from the immediate context. What kind of life do you see on display in Paul? What kind of life do you see on display in the one who's teaching us this? What kind of life is he exhorting from us? Look back at chapter 4 for just a minute. We're just going to, like I said, helicopter view. Just note these things. First of all, when this is your ambition, it results in holiness, a holy life. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. These were not just messengers of the truth. They were always striving to be holy messengers of the truth. If pleasing Jesus is really your aim, then you have to pursue holiness. It will be a Christ-exalting life. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. We don't mean anything. He means everything. We exist to serve Him, therefore we serve you. This is the kind of life it produces, a life that exalts Christ. Where is our self-exaltation coming from? Blurry vision. If you see clearly the unseen things and the one whom you will meet with face to face, you stop exalting you, you start exalting him. And you count any way you can serve him as a privilege. It is a triumphant life. Verses 7 through 12, a triumphant life. I want to say it to you in advance. You can see it as we read it. I would describe it this way. It's a life that both is enduring, it endures hardship, but at the same time, it is enriching. God is at work strengthening us to live these lives that endure, but as He's doing it, He's at work through us, enriching the lives of others with the knowledge of His Son. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves, in every way afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body 
For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Then he says this, so death works in us, but life in you. God strengthens us to endure all of this. It's an enduring life, but the result is it's an enriching life. Oh, may the Lord use you for someone else's riches. By His grace, with the message of His Son, a holy life, a Christ-exalting life, a triumphant life. It is a bold life. When you see clearly what your future will be, you fear nothing that man can do to you. Verse 13, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed. Therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. I have no doubt about where I'm headed. And if you wonder, we heard Virgil this morning talking about the preaching of the gospel and what Paul suffered as he preached the gospel. How did he do that? It's because he knows his future. He knows his future. When you find yourself intimidated by what you know are lies when you find yourself tempted to play the coward, it's because you have lost sight of your future, which is to say you've lost sight of your Savior. How can I be disloyal to Him? It is a sacrificial life. Look at verse 15. For all things are for your sakes. Why do I suffer all of this? For the sake of the church, for the sake of the brothers and sisters that are being gathered in through the ministry that requires this suffering, all things are for your sakes so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. God's glory is what fuels what Paul does. And what he sees is as the gospel spreads and people are saved, God is glorified as He deserves to be in more and more human lives. And so He's willing to sacrifice for that. As He says at one point in the New Testament, I will gladly spend and be spent on behalf of your souls. I will spend what I have and I myself will be expended on behalf of others. It is a hopeful life. Verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That is hope. And I won't read it for the sake of time, but if you go on beyond our verses, verses 11 through 21, let me just summarize it for you. Here's what you're going to see. This life that has embraced our ambition, what does it look like? How does it manifest itself? What is its fruit? It's a holy life, a Christ-exalting life, a triumphant life, a bold life, a sacrificial life, a hopeful life. When you look at verses 11 through 21, you're going to see it is a life that is from Christ, for Christ, directing men to Christ, and all the while resting in Christ. That is living with one ambition. And so this 
Single ambition can be described in a multitude of ways. We live our lives aiming for the glory of God. We live our lives aiming to be faithful to God. You could explain it or express it in more than one way. But one way it can certainly be expressed is that we have as our one ambition, whether in this life or in the life to come, to be found as one who pleased Jesus. So I'll just say this final word. Knowing what you will be in the forever day What do you aim to be on this day? Knowing what you will be in the forever day, what will you do with today? With this day? Look again at verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. The church would say, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. For giving us your Son, whose life and death and burial and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins has reconciled us to you. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes. Thank you for causing us to love your Son. Thank you for forgiving all of our sins. Thank you for clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you for giving us an everlasting hope. You've now made us a people who can live with the realities of two worlds in view, not wasting the present, but not satisfied with the present, living our lives in light of the forever day. This is your doing, not ours. So we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.